that we read all the way from John 18, 28 to 19, verse 37. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're here, of course, to remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and we call that day Good Friday. But, of course, if you were there at the time, it would have been anything but a Good Friday. The way that, that John retells the story helps us to see that, that there are two radically different ways of interpreting what happened there on that day. What we know and what John shows us is that Jesus was laying down his life. Jesus was entirely in control. He was fulfilling the scriptures and saving his people. And of course, that's why we call it Good Friday. But that's not what you would have thought if you had been there at the time. And John does a very good job of showing us that that's not at all what people saw when they were there. The ugliness of what everyone was seeing would have seemed like the reality of what was actually going on. And here's, here, here's, what, here's what you might have seen if you were there at the time, assuming you were just an innocent bystander. You would have seen an innocent but perhaps slightly crazy man caught up in the wrong time and the wrong place. You would have seen an insecure and perhaps even powerless governor appointed by Caesar and a bunch of jealous Jewish authorities who knew how to work the system to their advantage. And that poor, perhaps slightly crazy man, you would have seen him caught up between those two powers, caught up again in the wrong place in the wrong time. And any bystanders, perhaps even the Roman soldiers themselves, would have been thinking as they watched that trial unfold, this is anything but a good Friday. This is a picture of everything that was wrong with their day and age. We read that Jesus was dragged to Pilate's headquarters in the early morning, and the word that's used there uh, usually refers to the second watch of the morning, so sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Don't forget that Jesus was arrested at night, so the, the trial that took place at Caiaphas's house would have taken place at night. And so now it's the very early hours of the morning when they drag Jesus off to Pilate's headquarters. The text says that they didn't even enter Pilate's headquarters because by doing so they would have entered a Gentile's house and thereby, according to their own rules, defiled themselves and and thereby they wouldn't have been able to eat the Passover. And so you see what a sick irony lives in the hearts of, of these people that they're willing to crucify an innocent man And at the same time, they're taking great pains to avoid making themselves unable to celebrate the Passover. And of course, the Passover is ultimately all about the Lord Jesus. So you see the irony beginning to play out. Well, Pilate, he was the governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 37. He was a man appointed by Caesar. And all the Gospels and also even other sources outside of the Bible show that Pilate was an was a, an insecure man, a man who was unable to stand up for justice, and he was also a man who hated the Jews. He, he hated them, um, and, and there was this constant conflict between Pilate and the Jewish authorities. So after that long trial in Caiaphas' house, during the dead of night, they dragged Jesus off 
to Pilate's headquarters, and they even managed to get Pilate to to sit up at the front of his headquarters so that he could speak to them while they stood outside. Well, when, when they got there and Pilate set his throne out in the front of his headquarters, he asked them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And the way that the Jewish authorities responded to Pilate suggests that they weren't actually expecting him to ask this question. They weren't expecting Jesus to get a trial. They hadn't prepared any arguments. And so they just the only thing they have to say is, well, if this man wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you in the first place. And of course, that's a, it's a pathetic argument that would never hold up in court. But it suggests they weren't expecting Pilate to give Jesus a fair trial. They had probably bribed him ahead of time, which explains also where they got the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the first place. But now suddenly, against their expectations, Pilate decides he's going to give Jesus a fair hearing. Now before you pat Pilate on the back for that, don't forget he still ultimately had Jesus crucified, even though he knew that Jesus was innocent. So his principles don't seem to actually count for very much. But nobody wants to be responsible for killing an innocent man if, if, if they can avoid it. And probably Pilate might have been worried about the consequences that this might come back to haunt him later. And so he decides that he's going to give Jesus a fair trial. So he tells them, if this man is doing evil, but you don't have an accusation to bring against him, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But then the Jews responded, it's not lawful for anyone for, for us to put anyone to death, which shows that they'd already decided what the sentence was going to be. Now again, if you were just an average bystander, you would have seen all of this playing out in horrible, ugly detail. The whole brokenness of the justice system of that day. Lawless, jealous Jewish authorities manipulating a pathetic governor who didn't know how to stand up to them. And you probably would have felt sorry for that poor man who was caught up between these two authorities, who was obviously innocent, and yet it was also obvious that this wasn't going to go well for him, despite his innocence. This, is, this kind of injustice would have been to many a sick reminder of the, the world that they lived in. But now, notice in, in verse 32, John already now starts to show us another perspective on what was going on. Yes, this was straight up corruption and injustice between Pilate and the Jews. It was a sham trial and anyone watching would have been able to see that. And it was probably also backed up by bribes given during the night. But John tells us that this actually was happening in order to fulfill Jesus' words. He needed to be crucified. He needed to be, as he had said himself, lifted up for the world to see. So we start to see already on that very dark Friday, Jesus was not actually a helpless victim. He was very much in control of the situation. He was working with a purpose. Well, then in the next verses, we see Jesus and Pilate, uh, Pilate questioning or interrogating Jesus. And you can notice three things, if I'll just summarize that conversation 
in the first place, Jesus clearly exposes Pilate's corruption because Pilate goes and asks Jesus if he is, in fact, a king. And Jesus points out, you wouldn't have even known, known to ask that if someone hadn't mentioned it to you beforehand. So Jesus revealed that there was actually some kind of deal between Pilate and the Jews beforehand. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known that Jesus was being called a king. In the second place, Jesus made it clear that indeed he was a king, but not the sort of king that posed any threat to Pilate or to Caesar, which was going to be ultimately the accusation against Jesus, that he was a threat to Caesar. But Jesus says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world, and if it was, my servants would have been fighting. So he proves he's not a threat to Caesar. And thirdly, Jesus proved how broken the whole system was. Indeed, how broken the whole world itself was that he came to save. Because he says, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And all that Pilate has to say as, as the representative of justice in that world, all he has to say is, what is truth? Now, who knows what Pilate was actually thinking. Maybe he thought Jesus was just a crazy person. But he knew that Jesus wasn't guilty, and it didn't seem to bother him enough to actually do anything to save Jesus' life. His attitude towards the truth, it actually sounds cold so much, actually, like the attitude of so many people today. And it's frightening to see that in someone in power, for him to throw up his hands and cynically ask, well... What is truth after all? It shows you something of the darkness of the world that Jesus came to save. Nevertheless, we see that even even though Pilate didn't care about the truth, still something in him didn't want to be responsible for killing an innocent man. So he went out to the Jews again, and he made a point of exposing their hypocrisy. He said to them straightforwardly, I find no guilt in this man. Now, of course, he knew that they weren't going to be satisfied with that answer. They didn't run a mob and try him during the night and drag him to Pilate's headquarters in the early morning in order to hear a declaration that he was an innocent man. And so, knowing that this wasn't going to go well anyways, he took the opportunity to at least make a little bit of fun out of the Jews. He says, You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now here, Pilate's not trying to save Jesus' life anymore. He's just ridiculing these Jewish authorities. He's having some fun at their expense. He sees Jesus probably as an innocent but crazy madman. and And he decides to have some fun with that and call him in front of everyone the king of the Jews, just to egg them on, to provoke them. Now, of course, the Jews were furious at that. They wanted nothing to do with that, so they cried out, No, not this man. Instead, release Barabbas. Now, John tells us Barabbas was, was a robber, and, and the word he uses actually suggests that Barabbas was more than a robber. It's a word that more often refers to a terrorist, a, a, a Jewish terrorist against the Roman authorities, a, a rebel against Rome. So the irony of all of this is that the Jews are, are in the next paragraph, they're going to accuse Jesus of being a threat 
to Caesar, and that's why he ought to die. And in the meantime, they're trying to release Barabbas, who in fact was a rebel against Caesar. So they prove their own hypocrisy in laying such a charge against, against Jesus. Well, Pilate clearly saw he wasn't going to get anywhere with this. So he decided to have Jesus flogged. And maybe he thought that would be enough to satisfy the Jewish authorities. Now, this is, this is not the flogging that Jesus would receive before his, his crucifixion. It's a different word, and it refers not to a, a, a whipping, which would happen later, but to punching and kicking him until he was broken and, and, and significantly bruised and, and bleeding the, the godless soldiers, of course, they didn't care what happened to Jesus. They didn't care whether he was innocent or not. They hated all of the Jews anyways. These were Roman soldiers. And so they, they not only beat him up, but they also took the opportunity to have some fun with him, to make a mockery out of him. They twisted a, a crown of thorns into his head that the, the thorns would have come from probably a, a date palm. There were, there were many of them there with big leaves that actually looked a little bit like a crown and they would have had thorns that were several inches long and so they made that crown and pressed it into his head and threw a purple robe around him and the soldiers took that opportunity to make a mockery of Jesus because they hated the Jews so badly they could care less whether Jesus himself was innocent or not well then Pilate took Jesus out to the Jews, still fully dressed with the crown and the robe, and, and broken and probably bleeding significantly after the beating. And he told them, look, behold the man. And he hoped that this would finally be enough to let them go their separate ways and leave Jesus alone. But the chief priests and the officers only yelled out louder, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate gave one last, opportun- one last, chant- one last uh, attempt at-, at saving Jesus' life and said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You begin to see what a coward Pilate really was. Not only having someone beaten whom he had just declared he knew to be an innocent man, but now also abdicating his own responsibility to protect him and to uphold justice and saying, can you at least crucify him yourselves somewhere out of my sight so that he could turn a blind eye and not consider himself responsible for Jesus' death. So Pilate has now twice declared that Jesus is an innocent man and yet it's already clear that he was going to be crucified anyways. Again, to anyone, to any onlooker seeing these, these events unfold, this was anything but a good Friday. By any standard of justice, this was not a good Friday at all. Everything that was wrong with the world was on full public display. So the Jews said to Pilate, Well, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. Now, the text tells us when Pilate heard this, he became even more afraid. And and don't take from that that Pilate understood what they meant, that Jesus was the Son of God. He said himself, he's not a Jew. He He was a Roman pagan. But he would have heard this as Jesus is perhaps a son of the gods. And that thought scared him. So he went back into his headquarters and he asked Jesus, where are 
you from? But now Jesus didn't answer him, perhaps because he had already said he didn't care what the truth was. So Jesus didn't answer him, and he would have been gasping for breath and bleeding anyways. And so Pilate loses his patience with Jesus. He said to Jesus, at this, at this point, hopefully, thinking hopefully even to find an excuse to kill him, he says, are you now refusing to speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you or to crucify you? And then we read verse 11, Jesus did answer him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, now the way this is translated is actually a little bit unhelpful. Uh, when he says it in that sentence, if you look there in verse 11, unless it had been given you from above, that does not refer to Pilate's authority. The, the word in the Greek cannot refer back to Pilate's authority. Instead, it seems to be referring to the situation as a whole. So he's saying you wouldn't be ruling over me. You wouldn't have any authority unless this whole situation had been given you from above, unless this was in God's plan, in other words words. And and, and therefore, the greatest guilt is on the people who knew perfectly well who Jesus was. Not like Pilate, who saw him as an innocent but probably crazy man, but the people who knew who Jesus was, the Son of God and the Messiah, and still delivered him over anyways. And that seems to be the point then that Jesus is making. Now, it's not to say Pilate didn't have any responsibility at all. He certainly did, And so we even read from that point on, Pilate got serious about trying to save Jesus' life. But it's already clear the Jews would accept nothing but death. Their argument was that Jesus, uh, this is now their third argument, that Jesus is now also a threat to Caesar. So first they say, we wouldn't have delivered him over if he wasn't guilty. That obviously wasn't enough. And so then they say, well, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And that still isn't enough. And this is their third argument. Jesus is actually a threat to Caesar. Now, of course, that's a ridiculous argument. Not only because Jesus has already made it clear that he's not a threat to Caesar, but also because these Jews would have loved it if Jesus was a threat to Caesar. That was their lifelong dream to overthrow Caesar. And Pilate knew that, so everyone could see that this whole trial was a sham. Now, of course, Pilate should have just put an end to it. He should have sent those Jews home and and said, enough is enough, you can't crucify this man. He He should have declared that he wasn't going to punish Jesus for crimes that Jesus clearly hadn't committed. But when the Jews started speaking about Jesus being a rebel, a threat to Caesar, then you see Pilate lost his nerve. Things could get very seriously dangerous for him if word got back to Caesar that he was protecting a rebel. So so finally, Pilate gives up trying. He had used every opportunity to, to save Jesus' life in, in, in his limited capacity, trying to reason with them instead of just declaring that, that they had no right to kill him. And so now he just uses this opportunity, knowing Jesus is going to die, to drag down the Jews into the same level of gutlessness and shame that he found himself in. So he brought Jesus out one more time and said to them, 
probably laughing at them, behold your king. He says it just to ridicule them one last time. And when they said crucify him, he asked again, shall I really crucify your king? If they were going to make him crucify Jesus, he figured at least he'll use it to shame them. It's just gutless, shameless cowardice on the part of, of, of the governor. To everyone there who was watching, this was an example of everything that was wrong with the Roman system and with the Jewish authorities. Again, this was not a good Friday at all. Everything about it was ugly. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Now in the ancient Roman world, crucifixion was the most horrible and shameful punishment possible. It was so brutal that it was only reserved for slaves and for the lowest of criminals. In fact, a Roman citizen could not be crucified except with express permission from Caesar himself. Before he was crucified, he would have been stripped naked, tied to a post, whipped with a special whip designed to to tear him to pieces. He would have lost a great amount of blood. Many people even died just from the whipping. His body would have gone into shock and already would have sealed his eventual death. Then it says they made Jesus carry his cross uh, out of the city. It doesn't refer to the whole cross. The vertical post was permanently fixed in the ground. He would have carried the, the horizontal cross beam. And, and that was also a normal practice. Although many victims already in shock, already beginning to die because of the whipping, they would have collapsed under the weight of, of a cross beam. That's why the other Gospels tell us that they ultimately got a, a different man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross the rest of the way. Jesus would have collapsed under its weight. And when they came to the hill Golgotha, they would have made Jesus lie on his back. They would have nailed his wrists into that horizontal beam and then hoisted that beam up onto the, the, the vertical post and then also nailed his feet into that. Crucifixion was meant to be a slow death and, and a death by suffocating, by asphyxiation, because his body, his whole body would have weighed down on his lungs, and the only way to breathe would be to push himself up against those nails. Usually the person would hang there, often for days, barely hanging between life and death, coming in and out of consciousness for hours and hours. It was designed to be the slowest and the most painful way to kill someone. And it was normal for the Romans also to put a sign on the cross that stated what the crime was. And so in this case, Pilate had them put up a sign saying, The King of the Jews. And it would have read in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. This was his last way of getting back at the Jews. From his perspective, just a, a tit for tat. You made me crucify him, fine. Then I'll embarrass you in the process. Now, of course, they were furious with that sign, and they insisted Pilate change it, but he said, what I have written, I have written. Now, of course, we know the irony here, and John wants us to see this, is that that sign actually spoke the truth. This was the king of the Jews, and, and John wants us to see that. Pilate and the Jews didn't even realize how true that sign really was. 
And so here we begin to see the, the two very different perspectives on what was actually going on that Friday morning. The average bystander would have just seen a sick travesty of justice, an innocent man being crucified and killed in the worst possible way as a result of jealous Jewish authorities and an incompetent Roman governor. John wants us to see a different perspective. What was actually happening that morning was something very different. And we begin to see this uh, with, with the soldiers already as they're divvying up Jesus' clothing, which was also a normal practice. And John tells us this happened to fulfill the scriptures, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So John wants us now to open our eyes and see more than just an innocent man being killed as a result of injustice. He wants us to look past what we see at the surface and open our eyes to what God was doing on that Friday morning. Even through this horrible event, we begin to see God was fulfilling Scripture. God was accomplishing His purposes. And it wasn't even just God the Father accomplishing his purposes through this event. John helps us to see that Jesus was also intent on fulfilling God's purpose. He had said this, in fact, his entire life. My purpose is to do the will of my Father. And so we see, and we need to see this, this is also Jesus' purpose now as he hung there on the cross. He wasn't just a helpless victim, though it would have looked that way to the average bystander. In fact, Jesus was deliberately carrying out the will of his Father, even with his body in shock, even with death drawing near, Christ had his mind fixed on that purpose from the Father to accomplish the work that he set out to do. And that's what you especially see then in Jesus' final moments on the cross. As he hung there, some of the women, including his own mother, drew near and we, we can only begin to imagine the pain that his mother wa- was going through. And with her also was, was the disciple John, the author of this gospel. And, and he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so the Lord Jesus on the cross looked down at them, even as his, his body was in shock, as his consciousness was drifting in and out. He looked down on them and said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. And so even while Jesus was carrying out the wrath of God, we can see the depth of his love and the depth of commitment to his responsibilities, even for a small responsibility like taking care of his mother. He might have said, my responsibility is to suffer and die for the people, and that's certainly enough. Someone else can look after my mother. But we see Jesus' total commitment to even his smallest responsibilities by making sure that even his mother was going to be taken care of. So John helps us begin to see that this Friday was not just a broken sick, ugly Friday morning. We see it from God's perspective, and instead we see the Lord Jesus fully in control, carrying out God's will, laying down his life of his own will and out of love. 
And that's what John helps us to see through all of the next verses. The soldiers, they would have looked up and seen a dehydrated and bloody and dying figure saying, I thirst, like almost any a criminal would say on the cross. But John tells us there was more happening even in those simple words. He says even that too was happening to fulfill Scripture. Now the sour wine that was offered to him, that's not the same wine as as the wine mixed with myrrh that you read about in the other Gospels. That wine Jesus refused because that wine was meant to dull the pain. This wine was actually meant to prolong the person's life and keep them awake to experience more pain. So Jesus received that wine, and John, John tells us he took it not because he was ultimately thirsty, but he took it ultimately to fulfill Scripture, specifically the words of Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That seems to be the verse that John is referring to. So when Jesus received that wine, and don't forget wine is also the symbol of God's wrath, Jesus received that wine, and then he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. You see him fulfilling his, his purpose, him completely in control of his own life. He's not just a helpless victim caught up in a system that was unjust. No, he, in fact, was a conqueror. He knew what he was doing. He laid down his life to complete the work that God had given him to the very last detail. The cross of of Christ is often caricatured as some kind of divine cosmic, uh, cosmic child abuse where the father pours out his wrath on the son. But what that, that caricature misses is that Jesus went willingly to the cross in full control of his own life. In fact, he said so in, in John 10. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So the, the caricature that this is some kind of cosmic child abuse is dead wrong because Jesus went willingly desiring to fulfill his Father's purpose. Hebrews 12 even says that he did so for the joy that was set before him. We don't think of Christ going to the cross and doing what he did for the sake of joy. But that's what Hebrews 12 verse 2 says us. We looked says to us, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. So here we see Jesus laying down his life out of joy out of love, with a purpose, because now he has finished the work that God has called him to do. And so it continues even after he dies. The Jewish leaders asked that Pilate would break the legs of the victims, which would prevent them from pushing themselves up and and thereby cause them to die. And that's what the soldiers did to the two thieves on either side of Jesus, starting from the outside and then working towards the middle. But when they got to Jesus, they discovered he was already dead. 
And John calls us up again to see this is not just another accident of history. No, John mentions two prophetic verses. One is from Psalm 34, which says, Not one of his bones will be broken, which is also a reminder of the Passover lamb. That was a requirement for the Passover lamb. And and then he also mentions Zechariah 12, verse 10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. So this is not an accident of history. Even after Jesus' death, he is still fulfilling Scripture. Now the the piercing and and the blood and water that would have come out is, is also clear, irrefutable evidence that Jesus did indeed die. And and that's a point that John emphasizes in, in his letters as well. There are many people who say that Jesus didn't die. Muslims borrow from from a Gnostic theology that says that Jesus couldn't have died because the Gnostics believed that Jesus wasn't truly completely human, so he couldn't have died. And, And so Muslims say that perhaps Jesus simply went unconscious on the cross. And some people even say they accidentally crucified Simon of Cyrene on the road instead, which is, of course, a a ridiculous suggestion that the soldiers accidentally crucified the wrong person. But, but John emphasizes that he was there. He says, I know that I'm telling the truth. He was there and he saw what he saw. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' sides. And, and, and that spear would have punctured him close to his heart where there's, there's a, a lining around the heart containing a clear fluid. And so he would have seen blood and water spilling out. And, and with that with that then showing that his heart was punctured, it's irrefutable that Jesus fully, completely died. And that is ultimately what Christ came to do. He came to die. He came to be declared innocent twice by the governor and still be crucified anyways, to be condemned as a criminal, to bear the full weight of God's wrath as he suffered and finally died. To the average onlooker, again, this was anything but a Good Friday. But John calls us to see what actually happened that morning. Christ went to the cross willingly to fulfill God's purpose and to fulfill our greatest need, which was to die in our place. The message of the cross is at the same time horrifying and yet also glorious. Christ went there so that you and I would not have to. The cross is what we deserve for our sins. We deserve to hang there on that cross. The cross is what our sins deserve. Above all, the sin of turning our backs on God, the sin of despising God's glory and making ourselves kings and queens in God's place. And that's what, that's what sin is. It's choosing to live by our own law and for our own glory instead of serving God's law, serving our Creator. It's high treason, but not high treason just against Caesar, which deserved crucifixion, but high treason even more against God, our Creator. Now, we may not consider our sins all that serious. We might think, my sins don't deserve death on the cross. But God's word is clear, and it was clear right from the beginning of human history. The wages of sin is death. 
No matter what excuses or lies sinners might make for themselves, the wages of sin, by God's terms, is death. And through the cross, then, God declares this is the ultimate horrible result of sin. Horrible, eternal death. That is what our sins deserve. So the cross is horrifying. And yet the cross is also glorious. Because there on the cross we also see God's love and Christ's love for undeserving sinners. Christ went there so that you and I would not have to hang there on that cross and endure God's wrath for the rest of eternity. The cross is not at all a tragic accident of history where an innocent man managed to get caught up between two forces of injustice. It's the very place that God's salvation was headed towards all along for thousands of years. It's the deepest expression of God's love for His people. If He sent Christ there for us, then how much more, now that Christ has gone there for us and has paid our penalty, how much more will He also now carry us forgiven sinners to Himself? The cross is horrifying to look, to look at, but it's also more precious than anything else to hold on to for all that we are worth. As Paul says, far be it from me to boast in anything at all except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, this Good Friday, meditate on the cross of Christ. Consider the sin that brought him there to die in your place. Consider the depths of shame and agony that He went to so that you would not have to go there. And consider the glory of God and the depth of Christ's love that He laid down His life willingly to restore you and I to God. Amen.